Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. We are in the midst of a series of messages right now in the book of Mark. And as we come to this passage here today that you just heard read, I'd like to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Lord, this morning we come to you and we again declare that your name is majestic in all the earth. We are grateful that you, the majestic God who is enthroned over all things, have made yourself available to us and you have revealed yourself to us through your word and also through your living word, the person of Jesus. We ask that as we think about this passage this morning that you would, as always, Uh, as you love to do, that you would illumine our eyes, that you would open our minds to what this passage has to say. And not only that you would stir our minds and engage our thinking, but that you would stir our affections and that you would help us to leave here changed people, uh, deeply transformed at the heart level. And so we trust you, Holy Spirit, to do that work that we are unable to do. And so we ask that you would do that among us this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I just mentioned, we are continuing in our series in the book of Mark that we have titled Following the Authoritative Son of God. And part of the reason why we gave it that title is because what we're trying to do throughout these weeks is to really sort of uh, give specific attention to what does it actually mean? What does it look like for us to follow Jesus, who is the authoritative Son of God? This is the essence of what it means to be a Christian, is to be a follower or an apprentice of Jesus. And so often we can kind of, that can just kind of get, get lost in the clouds. And so we want to just be thinking really practically and sort of go back to the very uh, bottom line basics of what does it mean to actually live lives of apprenticeship to Jesus. And we're sort of ending a section here in chapter 4 where Mark has been uh, telling us, these, giving us these, these parables and these teachings of Jesus on the kingdom of God. And he's actually, Jesus actually began his public ministry, if you remember. He began his public ministry by saying, believe the good news, the kingdom of God has come near. And so the, the very first thing that Jesus is announcing is that the kingdom of God has, uh, has come near. It's broken in. There's this new era of God's saving and delivering activity that has arrived. And if you're like me, your mind is filled with all sorts of questions. Where you hear Jesus say the kingdom of God has come near... Repent and believe the good news. And and in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, what is the kingdom exactly? How would we define that? What what does it look like for us to live as members of that kingdom? What is that kingdom actually like? What, What characterizes it? And there's all these questions that come to my mind that Jesus simply doesn't answer in the way that I want him to answer. And that Mark doesn't answer in the way that I want him to answer. Because instead of giving us after Jesus's announcement that the kingdom has come near... Instead of giving us like a really clear, succinct definition, he gives us 15 chapters of telling us about the life and ministry of Jesus. And essentially, by doing that, he says, if you want to know what this kingdom of God is like, if you want to know what the life in this kingdom actually looks like, what it means to follow this man, Jesus, keep reading. And it's as we look at the totality of Jesus' teaching that we get something of a mosaic picture of what it means 
to be members of the kingdom and what the kingdom of God is like and what it, sort of what defines it. And so we can't really look at just one passage. Uh, they sort of come together in a mosaic to give us this beautiful, larger picture of uh, the kingdom. And so uh, today, these two parables, as you heard read, uh, these are parables that are very specifically teaching about the nature of what the kingdom of God is like. And so we're going to look at these parables today and see what God has for us in these. So let's think about this first parable of the growing seed. And as we look at this parable, what we see is this. We see the true source of kingdom growth. The true source of kingdom growth. Listen, as Jesus says in verse 26, he says, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. So there's a handful of things that Jesus tells us here about the seed that I wanted to sort of uh, draw out for us. So the first thing he tells us about the seed is he says the seed grows night and day, meaning the seed grows continuously. Once you take a seed and you put it into the right environment of the soil and you add water to it, uh, the process of growth begins in that seed and it's going to continue to grow until one of two things happens. Either that seed comes to fruition and it bears fruit, as we see in the parable here, or until something cuts off the life of the seed uh, or that plant and it dies. But from the moment that that is put into the right environment, that seed begins to grow and it grows continually. Jesus tells us next that the seed grows whether he is asleep or awake. So whether the farmer is sleeping, whether he's awake, the seed grows Anyways, it grows continually and it grows apart from human intervention. It would be really odd if the farmer did this, but what he could do is he could set up like a lawn chair, right? He could put the seed in the ground and he could set up shop. He could get an umbrella and a cooler and all the stuff to make his you know, life comfortable. And he could sit there and stare at the ground where he placed the seed. And if he did so, it'd be weird. It'd be really boring over the course of you know, time. But he could do that and the seed would grow. The seed would also grow if he skipped town, if he left town, if he went somewhere else, if he went to a different country or a different continent, it doesn't matter. If he left or if he went and took a nap, if he went to go sleep and he's unconscious and dead to the world productivity-wise for eight hours a night, the seed continues to grow. In fact, if this man were dead, the seed would continue to grow because it grows continually and it grows apart from human intervention. The third thing Jesus tells us about the seed is he says it grows even though he does not know how. It grows apart from human intervention and he grows, it grows apart from human comprehension. It's been a, a tradition in our family that every year we get a mint plant. And we've got this really big uh, planter out on the side of our house. And we get this mint plant, which usually starts as, you know, you get it and it's in the little piece of soil that's this big. And it's got like three little shoots. And it's like a little Charlie Brown mint plant is usually what it ends up looking like. And so you take this little mint plant and you, you dig out a hole in the middle of the planter and you stick it in there and you keep watering it every day. And over the course of time, it just, it, it grows. And our, our kids run out there all the time and they're picking pieces of mint off of there and eating them. And we use them to, you know, to make summer drinks together. And we uh, take some and we harvest it and we dry it and then crush it up and make tea out of it. And it's just, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And it's a wonderful little thing that I enjoy every year to just like watch this little mint plant grow. And 
I confess that it, it's just like, it's kind of mind-blowing for me. You know, even in the age of all the, you know, the information we have about uh, plant biology and about photosynthesis and about all those things, we know so much more than this farmer would have known in the first century. And even still, we don't fully understand the why of everything. We know that there are certain chemical reactions that take place and the water causes the plant to grow. We don't know why water does that. There's the why question behind it that we don't understand. And seeds like this in the first century and the seeds today grow apart from comprehension. We don't fully understand all of the process. The last thing Jesus says is this plant grows all on its own, meaning it grows automatically. So these are the four things that Jesus is highlighting for us about this seed. And these things that Jesus highlights here, he is emphasizing the certainty of the harvest. So notice in verse 20, 28 and 29, he says, All by itself the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts it to the sickle because the harvest has come. So in other words, he's saying, if you take a healthy seed and you put it in a healthy environment, it's going to produce fruit. It's going to grow up and do what it was designed to do. So he's giving us these parables in order to uh, show us the certainty of the harvest that's to come. But he's also highlighting and emphasizing for us the unimportance of the farmer. Did you get the sense of that? Everything that he says about the seed, it grows continually, it grows automatically, it grows apart from human intervention, it grows apart from human comprehension. How much of the seed's growth is dependent upon the farmer, based on what Jesus says? None of it, right? Jesus is saying, this thing, like, it goes, it, it goes all by itself. The farmer is not the one who produces the growth. The source of the growth does not come from the farmer, and that's Jesus' point. He's belaboring the point that the kingdom growth that this seed represents, he's belaboring the point of the unimportance of the farmer. And essentially what he's saying is this. He's saying God's power alone brings kingdom fruitfulness. It is God's power alone that brings about kingdom fruitfulness. Now, of course, we've got to nuance this just a little bit because there's a couple different ditches we could fall into. One would be on the one hand to say, God can't get anything done in the world without us, right? And we could think, you know, God really needs me and I'm really important, you know, and if I wasn't here, nothing's going to get done around here. And so we could fall into that ditch or we could fall into the ditch on the other side and believe the opposite thing that what I do doesn't matter. You know, God is sovereign and if he wants it to get done, it doesn't matter if I'm alive or dead or if I live in obedience or not. It doesn't matter what I do. God's going to do what God's going to do regardless of whether I'm here or not. Neither of those things are actually true. Both of those things are partially true, but neither of those things are fully true. What we see here is that even though God's power alone ultimately brings kingdom fruitfulness, God invites us into partnership with him. God invites us into a kind of kingdom cooperation with him. And so, yes, he uses our actions. He uses our efforts. He uses our ministry. The things that we do matter. We see that even here in this parable, you can get a sense of this. It's the farmer who plants the seed. And it would be assumed that the farmer is the one who would pull out the weeds when those weeds come up. It's assumed that the farmer is the one doing everything he can to make sure that the seed has adequate water and adequate other resources it needs in order to grow. 
So it's not as if the, the farmer doesn't do anything. And we know this because if, if you're familiar with the writings of Paul, he wrote a letter to the church in the city of Corinth. And they're arguing over leaders. And they're all saying like, well, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos. And, and they're like choosing leaders and like hitching their wagons to different sort of like church leaders. And Paul is like, guys, just like, hold on a second here. You realize I planted, Apollos watered, but what? God's the one who made it grow. So don't look to any of these earthly leaders and think like, I'm really special because I get to be associated with this person and and how special they are. Don't you realize like, yeah, we have a part to play. Like I was able to plant the seed of the gospel with people and other people were able to nurture that. And that's a real important thing. And at the end of the day, God is the one who makes the seed grow. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here, that God's power alone brings about kingdom fruitfulness. Now, when we see and understand, when we know that God's power alone brings kingdom fruitfulness, uh, that is both enormously freeing and empowering. It's freeing because we don't have to make the seed grow. It's freeing because it's not our job to bring the kingdom. We do not bring the kingdom. God does that work. And yes, we work in partnership with God. And yes, our obedience and our efforts and our ministry and our actions, all of those things matter. And at the end of the day, we are not sitting under the weight of the responsibility of bringing the kingdom because it's not our job. God himself is the one who does the kingdom fruitfulness aspect. And he uses even us in that process. So it's enormously freeing for us because we no longer carry the weight of having to make results happen. We no longer carry the weight of having to make the kingdom of God come on earth because that's not our job in the first place. But this is also enormously empowering for us to realize that God takes even our efforts and somehow makes them turn out for the advance of his kingdom purposes. God takes even our small, even our unimpressive He takes our sometimes badly motivated, sometimes poorly timed efforts, and he makes them turn into something that we could never make them turn into. And so it's enormously empowering for us to realize God takes even the things that I do, even my actions, even those things that were like poorly motivated that, you know, I look back and I think, man, I wish I could take that back or I wish I could do that differently. God takes all of those things and somehow makes them work out for his kingdom purposes, and it's enormously freeing for us, and it's enormously empowering for us, because we live with a sense of confidence, and we live with a sense of uh, empowerment, knowing that there is no action that is too small to produce life-changing and eternity-altering kingdom fruitfulness when it's empowered by God the Spirit. And so we look to all of the ordinary small stuff of everyday life, and we don't look at those things and think, oh, that's just, that's really not important. I don't have to live in faithfulness in this area. I don't have to really care about this area because eh, it's just not that important. No, all of those things are important because God takes all of those things and uses them for his kingdom purposes. So knowing that his power alone brings the fruitfulness is freeing and empowering. So that's the true source of kingdom growth. God's power alone brings kingdom fruitfulness. The second thing that we see here is we look at this next parable, parable of the mustard seed, is we see the vast extent of kingdom growth. We see the vast extent of it. And so in verse 30, Jesus says, 
31 rather, Jesus says, The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth, yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. The two words that sort of carry the meaning of this particular parable are the words smallest and largest. The point that Jesus is making is that the seed starts off really, 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 really small and then grows to be really, 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 really big comparatively to how small it started out. If you've ever held a mustard seed in your hand, you know just how tiny they actually are. Those little teeny, teeny, tiny black specks that look like little specks of dirt that you could just go, you could just blow it and they just spread all over the place. If you dropped one ever, you'd never be able to find it. Right, uh, You can literally fit thousands of these little mustard seeds in the palm of your hand. So these are some of the smallest, uh, at least to the human eye, some of the smallest seeds. They're not the smallest seeds on the face of the planet. Right, There are smaller seeds, but even in Jesus' day, the language of, of mustard seed uh, was a, a sort of figure of speech way of talking about the smallest thing you can possibly imagine. And so it's interesting that Jesus takes uh, this th- this. Uh, seed, this picture that was used sort of proverbially to think about the smallest of the small. And he says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. So these mustard seeds begin super, super tiny, and then they grow up to be some of the largest plants in what would have been the first century garden. They grow up to be from these teeny tiny little seeds. They grow up to be these uh, tree-like bushes. They're not really a bush because they're a little too big or small. They're too big to be a bush. They're too small to be a tree. They're sort of this weird tree-like bush thing. And they can grow anywhere from between 7 to 10 is the average. Uh, they can grow up to about 15 feet tall in length. And so the, the, the point that Jesus is making, the emphasis of this parable is on the exponential growth of the mustard seed. It grows from this really small thing and exponentially grows to become this big uh, garden tree bush-like thing that it is. And part of what highlights for us the, uh, the extent of the growth is that this mustard seed, think about this, the mustard seed begins as this teeny little seed within a larger ecosystem of the garden. And then eventually, when it grows up, it becomes an ecosystem of its own because there's these birds that are perching and that are nesting in its branches. So it's no longer just a part of one little teeny tiny thing within this like super big garden. It's now an ecosystem all of its own. And so that shows us something of uh, the extent of the growth of the kingdom using this picture of the the seed. But it's not only the seed that shows us the extent of the growth of the kingdom, it's also the birds that are here. We see it's, you know, this little weird detail about like, yeah, and then birds come and perch in its branches. And, uh, and you're like, well, that's, I don't know, is that just a part of the illustration? Is that, you know, just to sort of give us a, you know, size reference? I think it's more than that because in the ancient world, Nations and kingdoms were often depicted and talked about as trees. Think about, you know, you're in the ancient world and there were some places that had like super big structures, right? Super big buildings like the pyramids. But then for most people, some of the biggest things that you would encounter would be these would be trees, right? And so trees are these symbols of like strength and power and, uh, and, and bigness and stability. And so you would use that image to refer to uh, a nation or to a kingdom. 
This is the way that God talks about the nation of Israel in the book of Ezekiel. I'm just going to read uh, a brief passage for you here. This is in the context of God has told his people, because of your disobedience, I'm going to send you into exile. And then I'm going to restore you. And listen to the language that he uses when he talks about restoring his people. This is Ezekiel chapter 17, starting verse 22. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from its topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it and they will find shelter in the shade of its branches. So again, this is a picture that's being given to us here of the restoration of the nation of Israel, of of, uh, renewal and restoration for them. And the picture is that they're going to be this large tree and the birds of the air are going to perch and nest in its branches. In this vision of restoration, those birds of the air, those represent the Gentile nations. Those birds represent the nations of the world that were not culturally, they were not ethnically Jewish. And it's giving us a picture not only of the restoration of the nation of Israel, but it's showing us that Israel is going to uh, be able to fulfill the purpose for which she was created. Right? God promised Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to all the nations. And Israel was told, I want you to be a light to the Gentiles. I want you to be the kind of people that when the nations look at you, they get a picture of who your God is and they want to worship Yahweh, your God, because they see how great he is because they look at you. And so this is a picture in this, uh, this restoration of Israel that's not only the people of Israel who are going to be restored, but it's also the Gentile nations are going to be grafted into the family of God. That the Gentile nations are going to be welcomed into, by faith, welcomed into the covenant community of God. And that's the picture that's being given to us here. And it's more than this because the Gentiles being grafted into the family of God point us to something even bigger than that. What they point us to is not just the restoration, the renewal of the Gentiles, but to the renewal of all things. This is a part of what you could call the prophetic hope. If you read the the books of the prophets, there's all this stuff that's like uh, sometimes jarring to us that's language of God's coming judgments and his discipline. And then pretty much all of the prophets, they all have uh, what's called the prophetic hope, where God doesn't just say, I'm going to bring judgment. He doesn't just say, I'm going to bring discipline. He says, I'm going to bring restoration. I'm going to bring hope. And the picture that's given to us is of the restoration and the renewal of all things. And so this is uh, what we see in this image of the birds perching in its branches, that not only will Israel be restored, not only will the nations be restored, but all of creation itself will be restored. There are so many things that we see and experience in our world that leave us longing for that restoration, right? We can look around and see uh, things globally. We can see things on a social level. We can see things on a cultural level. We can look and see things economically or um, all sorts of different uh, ways that are sort of out there just in, in the broader world that leave us just feeling like, man, how is anything ever going to get fixed around here? How is there ever going to be any, uh, any progress? How is there ever going to be any momentum or any movement towards uh, what we think is uh, the best thing for our country and for our world? 
And so we sort of live with a sense of like, man, everything is so broken. And then there's our own experience, which is far more difficult and far more personal because there's the, the things that we, the sufferings and the difficulty and the, uh, the anxieties that we carry, the fears that we have, the hopes that we have, the grief that we carry, the ways that we lament, the ways that our lives have maybe turned out different than what we thought they were going to turn out. And we can look at our finances or our marriages or our relationships or our parenting or all of those different areas. And there's all these different like points of pain and points of like, uh, like where we just kind of sigh and say, oh God, what do we even do? And we all have those things, not only just out there, but in our own personal lives, we all have that. And the great hope that we have is that one day creation will be restored and that all of those things that are broken, all of those things that are disjointed, all of those things that are out of place, all of those things that are not the way that they ought to be are one day going to be made right. The kingdom of God will come on earth as it is in heaven. And when that day comes, everything in creation will be restored to the way that it was designed to be. And so this shows us the vast extent of kingdom growth. And it's this, God's kingdom grows until all things are made new. Everything that the kingdom of God touches is renewed and restored. God's kingdom grows until all things are made new. I don't think it takes a whole lot of effort for us to long for the renewal of all things, right? That is, that's intuitive for us as followers of Jesus. Uh, we intuitively long for the renewal of our world. We long to experience a new heavens and new earth. We long to be in the presence of Jesus. And so this is something that uh, is just intuitive for us. And in fact, I would even say that our friends and neighbors and coworkers who are not yet followers of Jesus, they also long for the renewal of our world. We may disagree on what's wrong with our world in the first place. And we may disagree on what the solution is or how things get fixed, right? But even those who are not followers of Jesus live with a sense of longing that our world is not the way that it should be. And they live with a sense of longing for, can we, can we fix this? Can we make this better? Can we, can we you know, do what we need to do to take the next step in this? Our friends who are not followers of Jesus, they too long for the renewal of all things. It doesn't take a new heart to long for our world to be different than it is. What does take a new heart is to see and love the kingdom of God for what it is. It does take a new heart to see and to love the smallness and the hiddenness of God's kingdom. Jesus says it's like a mustard seed. That's not an impressive thing to say about the kingdom of God. That it's like this, it's small, it's unimpressive, it's easily overlooked. And then as you think about those who are not members of God's kingdom, who look on the inside and, and it's, it's easy to, uh, for them to look at the church, to look at God's people and, and to be dismissive, right? To say, okay, uh, that's what your kingdom is like. Those are the people who are a part of this kingdom of God. It's so great. How come all those people are a part of it? And to which we say, amen, <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly, that's the point. <laughs> But it's easy. The kingdom is small. It's unimpressive. It's easily overlooked. It's easy to dismiss. It's all of those things. And that is in the all-knowing, all-wise sovereignty of God that he's made the kingdom that way. And it's not intuitive for us to see a kingdom like that 
where the first will be last and the last will be first. It's not intuitive for us to see and to love that. What we want is to be important. What we want is to be first. And God says, you will be last. Right? To see a picture of a kingdom where Jesus lays down his life and shows us a picture of dying for your enemies and loving those who persecute you, laying down your life and actively desiring the good of those who hate you and want to kill you, that is not intuitive for us. And so it requires an act of God's spirit. It requires a change of heart for us to see the kind of kingdom that God has actually given to us and to see it and to love it for what it is and to give every ounce of our lives to it and to say, I am all in. I want nothing more than to live as a member of this kingdom and to do whatever I can to see the, uh, the kingdom purposes of God move forward in our world. That's what takes a miraculous change of the heart. And friends, I think what I want for us to see this morning is this. We will see and love the kingdom when we see and love the king. It's only when we see and love who the king of that kingdom is that we will actually see and love that kingdom itself. The kingdom, apart from the king, is not the kind of thing that pretty much any of us would want to be a part of. But it's the king that makes the kingdom so wonderful. Of course, the nature of the kingdom that Jesus described is counterintuitive. This is not the kind of kingdom that the Jewish people were hoping Jesus would bring. <laughs> they didn't want a mustard seed kingdom. They didn't want a kingdom that started like really itty bitty, teeny tiny, small, not influential, not powerful, no reputation, you know, bad reputation. They didn't want that. What they wanted was for the kingdom of God to burst onto the scene which necessitated, what that meant was that they were expecting for that to happen. The kingdom of God has to come and our political enemies must be overthrown here and now, right now. That's what they were hoping for. And Jesus didn't come to bring that kind of kingdom. Nor was Jesus that kind of king. The kind of king that they wanted was a king who was someone who was visible, who gave earthly displays of power, things like this. That's what they would have expected. A king who was going to seize power. A king who was going to take control, to take the reins, as it were. A king who was going to deal with their opposition and crush their enemies. That's the kind of king that they wanted. And Jesus came to do precisely the opposite of those things. Right? They wanted a king who was going to come and to seize power and to take control and what Jesus did, we're told in the book of Philippians, is that Jesus, who was in very nature God, who had the power, who had the authority, he chose not to seize that power and use it for his own advantage. But rather, he let go of his glory, he let go of that power, and willingly chose to take on the form of a servant and to suffer and to die for us in our place. Jesus did the opposite of what they wanted a king to do. And it was when Jesus did that, when he laid down his life, that is precisely the moment that he crushed his and our greatest enemy. It was when Jesus hung on the cross and when he suffered and died that he dealt the death blow to the spiritual forces of darkness. And so Jesus was not the kind of king that they wanted. His kingdom was not the kind of kingdom that they wanted to have, but Jesus actually gave us something far better than what they were hoping for. 
Jesus laid down his life and he suffered and he died. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead, which proved, which demonstrated his authority over hell and over death and over the evil one. It demonstrated the uh, depth and the extent of his love for us. And it proved what kind of king he was. And so this morning, we get to look to Jesus and remember what kind of king he was. And as we come to the communion table today, as we do each week, we get a tangible physical reminder of Jesus was this kind of king. Not who came to crush his political enemies, but as one who came to allow himself to be crushed for his political enemies, to lay down his life. And as we receive the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus in the bread and the juice, it's a physical, tangible reminder of the kind of king that Jesus is. And it points us to the kind of kingdom that he established. And it points us, it tells us something about the kind of people that we are to be as we live as members of God's kingdom. So as we come to the communion table today, I want to invite you to take just a few moments of quiet reflection and confession.